0: I was in a mall in Victorville, California, and I was walking along. It's a long time ago. And um you, you know how they have kiosks in the mall. I think some of you might have heard this story. But this was one of those Family Crest kiosks. And uh so I was looking for the, the my family crest for McKnight, and I knew that the origins of our uh, our family were Scottish and not not Irish. Irish came during the tenant wars or something like that and there was a guy named John McKnight who became the, the sort of the source of our family. But prior to that, I was connected with the McNaughton clan. So I'm looking along, and, you know, they had a whole bunch of them up here. And so I'm looking, and I was looking at one, and and it said, you know, eye for an eye. Uh, another one said blood to a fence. Another one uh, had these swords and, and uh, maces, and, you know, and then there was ones that, uh, like things, people were crushed and all this kind of stuff. It was pretty aggressive bunch of stuff, you know. And uh, then I came across this one. I looked at it and it had a castle keep and it had a cross. No, it had a naked hand holding a cross uh, on the opposite corners and it was the McNaughton clan. And all of those slogans that were so aggressive, the one I read, on my clan was I hope in God. (laughs) It was really amazing. Okay, now, just the existence of it and the, the truth of it, what was written there, that was pretty cool. But like I said, it was the first time I ever had an open vision. So I'm standing in this relatively busy mall in front of this thing, and I'd been reading across, looking for whatever. And I hit that, and the mall disappeared and i found myself in the, in a room like a big bedroom in a castle and out this big arched double thing that opened to a balcony with a stone rail there was a little short man old man gray hair big strong guy standing leaning up against that balcony and it was way high and you could see the rolling scottish mountains out there not really rolling kind of kind of rolling and he had his hands out like this, and he was praying. I suppose in Scott or Gaelic or whatever it was. And I knew he was praying for me and for my family. And it was like one of the most stunning things I'd ever encountered in my life. I hope in God. And I just, you know, uh, so when we sing that, tonight especially, may his favor go before you to your family and their children for a thousand generations and their children and their children. Because, I mean, my family uh, did not come out of Christian roots. Uh, Most of our history in America was Mormon, actually. And uh, there were some Mormon folks that came over and there's a bunch of McKnight's over in St. George, Utah, and some of those places. Nobody in my family that I knew of... uh, back through generations, uh, went to church or anything. But I'm standing there, and I realized, I mean, I think I got to see something real. I mean, I, I saw a prayer that pulled down a blessing. Like It was really cool. So, I don't know, it was very, kind of an emotional <laughs> time, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So don't don't underestimate what singing that and praying that and declaring that could do. And, uh, you know, we're in such tumultuous times right now that it's it's easy if you allow yourself just to kind of go with flow to wonder what the future of generations are, you know. Um, had a bunch of uh, a really good conversation yesterday uh, with Kevin, actually, and, and with you about socialism and the direction the country's going, and, and Jeannie has a unique perspective because she only comes back you know, for short amounts of time, she'd been in Africa for 11 years. Things are different. I mean, cycles make things change. But you know what? If we do, if we combine the the, the final verses of those two songs we just sang, on a hill that you created, Jesus died. And you'll do this 100, uh, eight billion times. And if you have to, you do it a hundred billion times. And I don't know enough to do the math on 8 billion people with a thousand generations, but he's not going to give up. He's not going to give up. So, anyway, that's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. I have been wanting to start this message. Or it's actually a continuation of the thing we encountered when we were looking at John. And it's that uh, Jesus is going to save the cosmos. And... Uh, that includes people and that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> we that led us, if you remember, to the idea of Christ in us as a hope of glory. And I know that that leads to questions because how you interpret that, how you see it, how it manifests, it's a challenge. I get it. I get it. Um, so I was uh, just skimming through news stories today because... Uh, uh, I'm just keeping up on what we've been praying about with the election and stuff and, and um, I read a brief one about the fact that there were some uh, antifa people self-proclaimed antifa so that's not a judgment uh, that rioted in portland last night against Thanksgiving and uh, that was what they said and they used graffiti and f thanksgiving and if you know all this kind of stuff, I mean, and, and so they broke a bunch of buildings, or a bunch of windows, and burned some things. And I want you guys to know, and the reason I'm sharing this story is by way of confession, because you, you know confess your sins one to another and you can be healed. But also by way of understanding. Uh, when I read that article, I thought in a really deliberate way, and this is terrible. I, I mean, I acknowledge it, it's terrible. But I thought in a really deliberate way, is this going to get to the point where the only way this is going to get pushed back against STEM is if people anticipate it and just shoot them from outside of the end of their stores or in the businesses. And I wonder how many it would take and how frequently it would have to happen to deter the people because I don't really think they're serious anarchists. I think they're opportunists. And I realized... When I had that thought and it, it had positive overtones <laughs> in my, my civic reasoning, you know, I go, wow, oh, this, this is not right. And I, I was led back to the fact that I want, I've been wanting to, I've been preparing for this and wanting to teach this as a continuing thing that we've been talking about, about Christ and us, the hope of glory. And ultimately, this has to be more than a doctrine. It has to actually play into how you think. And, how you, and, and one of the most fundamental ways is how do we see people? How do we see people? And so, again, the, the song that was the second to the last one, um, you know, eight billion something, uh, every one a child, he died to save. We have to believe that or not. There's not really a lot of ambiguity in the way we look at people. And so uh, tonight I'm going to talk about taking sides with Papa's desire, and, and and here's the quintessential example of someone who did. And that would be Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this on this bottom scripture. And going a little ahead, he fell on the ground. Now, you know where we're talking, right? It was in the garden, and Jesus is praying. And his, he said, you know, my soul is in agony over this stuff. So uh, he was just, I mean, he knew he was going to cross. He was about to identify. He was about to what Paul says at the end of the other section of scripture we're going to talk about he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that's what Jesus was facing and he he had a he had a, a obviously a certain knowledge of what he was going to face but he also had a certain ignorance of it which i know sounds weird doctrinally talking about god but but it's because he was entering into a darkness that was not his own there was nothing about Jesus' relationship with the Father that could possibly have made room for a darkness like that. And the reason I'm comfortable saying that is, one, I think it's true. And second, if you remember the, the Scripture that talks about when the children of Israel fell into the temptation of offering their, their children to Molech, the Scripture says that God said, it's never entered into my mind. So don't, don't take a, a theological doctrine like omniscience and lose the reality of the relational situation that exists when Jesus was facing a darkness that he could not have possibly had any reference points for, except that that's the place I have to rescue humanity from. Now, I can't explain it any more than that. I'm not going to try, and there could be a 100 people line up and come in uh, or come online and uh, criticize my theology for that, but I think that's true. Anyway, something caused his soul to have agony. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, right? So it wasn't the darkness that was set before him. It was the joy through the darkness. So going a little ahead, this was the physical reaction and the emotional reaction that Jesus faced. Going a little ahead, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it is possible, the hour might pass him by. And then he said this, and in, in the, in the recounting of what he said, we can see confirmed what he was facing and thinking, because that's where your words come from. Abba, father, for you, all things are possible. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but rather what you will. You know, I told you guys I was reading a couple of those books by Michael Phillips about encounters in heaven and so on and so forth. The uh, the release of our will or the surrender of our will to... Michael Phillips characterizes in his fantasy fiction about heaven. He, he uh, puts forth the single most important choice that continues to be made is the choice to surrender our will to God's. And that's exactly what Jesus did there. And literally everything from redemption flowed through this choice. It flowed through this point. And that's why I think that this idea of of a choice about who God is and what he's like and is he in us is such an important thing to study and why I'm going to stick with it until I can articulate it not as a doctrine, but as a conclusion that fits comfortably and naturally, even though we don't know the details, in our relationship with God and our understanding of God. So that's what we're going to, try to take a step forward tonight, and uh, we'll see how we do. Can we know God's desires? Who here would signify that you think we cannot know God's desires because perhaps of a scripture that, you know, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are higher than yours, I live in unapproachable darkness, blah, blah, blah. Anybody? I think not. How many think we can know God's desires? All right, let's give some weight to the other side. Can we know exhaustively all of God's emotions and all of his passion? No, no, definitely not. Because we have an infinite set of reference points having to be expressed to us in a finite realm of language and a finite realm of experience and emotion. Okay? So I think that finiteness is why I'm comfortable saying that Jesus did not know exactly. He knew specifically, but he did not know exactly what he was facing in that darkness. But he knew it was going to be rough, and he also knew to surrender it to his Father. Okay? So if we can know God's desires, if we can know the desires that God is able to make known to us, can are we able and willing to share them now that is not a question about finiteness that is a question about choice because we're not being asked to know that which we cannot know we're being asked to join in and share that which is revealable to us okay and here's here's uh sort of the admonition scripture, be of that mind in yourself that was also in the anointed one, Jesus. You guys are probably familiar with that. It sounds unfamiliar because it's David Dave Bentley Hart's translation. But um, let this mind be in you that was in Christ. You know, In other words, if there's any comfort, if there's any hope, if there's any of this kind of stuff. And then Jesus, who was equal to God, didn't seek that equality to be grasped. So the answer, I think, is yes, but obviously our example is Jesus. And more than our example, our doorway to that is Jesus. Our doorway to that is Jesus. Because He did it, because He shares His Father's goals and desires, so can we. Because He loves us, we can love. Because He sent us, as the Father sent Him, we can be sent. It's pretty cool. All right. So, uh, I'm going to concentrate on one area of God's desire, and it's the area that we fortunately sang about tonight in that next-to-last song. First Timothy 2, 1-6, through six, out of David Bentley Hart's translation, is, reads this way. First of all, therefore, I encourage petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving to be made on behalf of all human beings. Which human beings? All human beings. And I'm not going to try to be all that much on the Greek of uh, that, but all is pantos, and it means all. It's just... That's what it means. Sorry. Uh, all human beings on behalf of kings and of all who hold preeminence so that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all piety and solemnity. Now, if there was ever a scripture that applied to our cultural situation in the America, this is one of them right now, because I mean, uh, because living tranquil and quiet lives. I mean, uh, you have the riots in Portland against Thanksgiving, and quite honestly, you have a whole bunch of right-wing folk that now are animated like they've never been to be out in the streets. Uh, you got all kinds of non-pious, maybe solemn, but not in a good way. Things going on all over the place, behind the scenes. So it's an issue. So I thought it was fascinating that one of the most profound revelations of God's heart and His desire toward people is in the midst of uh, teaching about praying for peace, civic peace, governmental peace, cultural peace. So first of all, therefore, I encourage petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgivings to be made on behalf of all human beings. Now, this is one of the things that started to turn me around when I realized that I had murderous thoughts towards Antifa people who riot against Thanksgiving. I'm supposed to be... See, I can't afford to give up my Thanksgiving to respond to that. I'm supposed to issue, encourage petitions and prayers and intercession, Thanksgiving, to be made on half of. And are those folks, were those three that they arrested, and I saw their pictures... Are they a subcategory, not a subhuman, like I would like to think of people as sometimes. Are they a category of all human beings? Well, you don't have to be a genius to realize that. So yes, they are. So this starts governing my thinking, and I was confronted this morning with the essence of what I'm talking about. Can I know God's desire? Can I know God's desire for those three individuals whose face was on the police blotter? I can't. So now, not knowing what to do about them or think about them isn't the issue. It's will I align my heart or will I allow my heart to be aligned with God? And uh, it's it's a serious question. It's a legitimate question. All right. Then on behalf of kings and all those who hold prominence, regardless of what party they're on and regardless of which side the election question they're on, so that I might lead, or we might lead, a tranquil and quiet life in all piety and solemnity. And then even that verse is challenging to me. Governor Cuomo in New York had uh, the case made its way up before the Supreme Court about the 10 and 25 restrictions on churches and synagogues. And it was a 5-4 decision. Cuomo mocked the decision by saying it was irrelevant because none of those restrictions were in place for any of the plaintiffs. That's not the point. And it made me not like him even more. But he's one of those guys that holds preeminence. And so, this admonition is defined this way. This is a good and acceptable thing before God our Savior. And I think it's interesting. Our Savior God, that's how He's defined. Our Savior God. Then it jumps in to one of the most controversial doctrines in the history of the church, which is what's going to happen to everybody. What does God want? Now, We're going to talk a little bit about what we don't have to believe out of this to align our hearts with God. But what we do have to do is consider, can we know what God intends or desires? All right, so if you read this in the New American Standard, beginning in verse 4, it says, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. David Bentley Hart gets in a little on the nuance and hammers away at some of the original words. Who intends all human beings to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of the truth. The uh, So this word intends is fellow. It is the same word that Jesus used to say not my will, but yours be done. Now I got in a, a debate with some friends uh, a few years ago in another state over, well, yeah, but this is something that God desires. It isn't His will, because in that group of pastors that I was talking with, and for me too, to say that God wills something carries like an authoritative, it's going to happen thing. And so they were trying to say, one of them especially, well, no, this, this means desires. Well, it does mean desires, but it also means intents, and it also means will, and it's used about 240 times in the New Testament, the, the three variants of it. But the one that's a kicker to me is it's the same one. When Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will. Anyway, it's pretty cool. So this is, this is, uh, a determinative thing in God's heart. So the first question I want to ask about that, is what if we were able to parse out the Greek, uh, the language, in such a way that it's not really an absolute expression of His will. It's just what God wants. Well, can anybody help me understand where we get permission to not want what God wants? I can't think of it. See, when we turn this stuff into doctrines, we lose the relationship and then we give ourselves permission to analyze it so that we don't have responsibility. All of us are going to face God in a a variety of ways and there's going to be a a reconciling or an account given, all this kind of stuff. Hebrews talks about we pass before His face to whom we must give an account, all that kind of stuff. I think that we are going to know whether or not we allowed our hearts, we chose to align our hearts with God's. Because ultimately, a heart-to-heart connection is the essence of the relationship that is eternity. That's knowing. Okay? So God does intend for all human beings, including those three that I saw in the police blot or in the article, and other persona non grata in my own personality and judgments to be saved. Sozo, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it's this complete outpouring. You guys understand what sozo is, right? It means being saved, healed, delivered, kept, set free, made whole, all that kind of stuff. In other words, the whole package of redemption, the whole package of life. And to come to a full knowledge of the truth, uh, the full knowledge of the truth, Ronnie, is... Epigenesan, it is that experiential full encounter that leaves you knowing the one you've encountered. And so, uh, yes. Now, this is a desire in the heart of God our Savior. He intends all human beings to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of truth. And then it explains... For there is one God and also one mediator of God and human beings, a human being, the anointed one, Jesus, who gave himself as a liberation fee for all persons, the proof rendered at their own proper time. I like reading from different translations, especially when I trust the translator. And I think that is just so much, so thought-provoking. For there is one God and also one mediator of God and human beings, A human being, emphasizing Jesus as the Son of Man, the Anointed One, Jesus, who gave himself as a liberation fee for all persons. All persons. Those three. Even me. I mean, that's what we have in common. We can start there. I could start there if I want to have uh, a congenial relationship in my heart. Grace and, and love in my heart the three that I saw in the article that provoked such a hateful thought at me. I can start that we've all four had a liberation fee paid for us by Christ. And I know it sounds religious and it can be cliche, but there's a reality here that if if I will give it as much attention as I do, they're acting out on Thanksgiving because God knows why. And literally God does know why, and I don't who gave himself as a liberation fee for all persons. And then, keep this phrase in mind as we move forward, the proof rendered at their own proper times. All right. So one of the problems with thinking about Christ being in people and about God's desire that those people, no matter how horrible and no matter how despicable, that God wants them saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth is because their behavior and the damage they do to themselves and to other people and to society, it, there are bad people who do bad things. They are. But none of that changes that. And one of the beautiful things that that last phrase gives us permission to take refuge in and to withhold judgment and to not get cynical and not grumble under our spirit, behind our spirit, in our mind, against God. Oh Lord, how long before you rain down justice and judgment? All this kind of stuff. is because this liberation fee given by the anointed one, Jesus, for all persons, looks like it's going to be proven at the proper time. And I don't know when the proper time is. I'd like it to happen sooner. So when I got that vision at the Ascension about uh, Trump's second inauguration and and the, the feature of it wasn't just that he was being inaugurated. The feature was there was humility in everybody's life because some kind of proper time had touched their souls. Anyway, it was pretty, pretty exciting. I mean, I'm living on that right now. You know, and I like the... I do watch, or I don't, I I read the news a little bit and uh, I like it when there are stories that give me hope that something's happening and uh, I get discouraged when there's not, but only for a second, because I've, I've got permission to give this thing room to breathe, to give God room, to give this liberation fee for all persons, even those three, even the governor of New York, even me. See what I'm saying? Okay, let's go on. Here's a second statement of the same desire, but it's stated in the negative, which is sometimes pretty handy. And it also, when you get the Bible saying two different or saying the same thing two or three different ways, you can you know pretty much take that to the bank. It's not just a plain repetition. It's not the same thing as having two or three a prophecy quoted two or three times. It's God making sure under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that something is accurately being revealed by the Father. So this is in Second Peter uh, seven through nine. And by that same word, now the heavens and the earth are stored up. Oh, and let me remind you, one thing we just looked at. All of this stuff about God's intent that men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth is expressed as something that is good in the eyes of God in the context of the exact kind of cultural unrest and and cultural Warfare and depravity that we're facing right now. So the fact that things look worse than they've looked in most of our adult lives in our country, and I think they do, is no excuse to abandon the central truth that's revealed as the gem in the middle of that, which is that God desires all men to be saved, and he's got provision for it in Christ. All right, and by that same word now, the heavens and earth are stored up for fire, reserved for a day of judgment and of ruin for the impious among human beings. Now there's a cheery scripture. There's a scripture that absolutely will rock your world if, if what you're trying to do is, uh, tag on to doctrine, you know, one form of, of ultimate reconciliation, one form of judgment, one form of this or that. Well, I don't know. I just, there it is, just kind of hanging out there. By the same word now, the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire. You know, before this, uh, the verse just before this is when it talked about the word was made by, by water and then it was destroyed by water. And in the same way, it says, by that same word, meaning the characteristic of the flood and all that purification went on there. Uh, now the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, reserved for a day of judgment and of ruin for the impious among human beings. But do not let this one thing be concealed from you, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as a single day. All right. The last phrase of the part we read in First Timothy chapter 2, says that at the proper or at the appointed time. And now here, in the midst of same situation, looking at the judgment that is appropriate for a world and the impiety of it, and is being reserved for it, there's an admonition that says, don't miss this point. God has time. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not delaying what is promised, as some reckon delay, but is magnanimous toward you. Long-suffering is another translation that's used for that word. Suffering long toward you. Intending for no one to perish, but rather for all to advance to a change of heart. Again, I like the way Hart uses that phrase because we're so, we so encapsulate what it says when it says come to repentance. Does that mean that they have to be sorry? Probably will be, but that's not what defines repentance. Does that mean that they've got to be weeping and gnashing their teeth? No. That vision that I saw of repentance would fit this. People were exposed. And, and the insight that the Spirit gave me as I was looking at these Democratic folks and the Republican folks standing there chagrined by what went on is that somehow their vulnerability, their surrender to darkness was revealed to them. And they go, literally, oh my God, what did I do? What did I sell my heart for? Now, whether it's the current situation or the situation that drives deception all over anybody's life, or people that we love, or long-standing strongholds of deception in our life, this is a beautiful promise, and there's time. There is time. So the Lord is not delaying what is promised, as some reckon delay, but is magnanimous towards you, intending for no one to perish, but rather for all to advance to a change of heart. So, can we... I, I think my next slide... Yeah. So... What is God's desire regarding people? All the people in humanity. He desires that they be saved, right? The complete package, saved, healed, delivered, kept, made whole. Made whole. This is one of the the problems with kind of a low view of substitutionary atonement is that you can go to heaven and not be changed. Now, a reformed theologian or pastor would say, no, that's not what we believe. And I understand that. But that is what the what the theology produces, is an expectation that Christ is going to impart a righteousness that isn't going to actually be righteousness in us, in our behavior. Because then all of a sudden that would make it works. But that's trying to reconcile a doctrine and not realize that you're not going to be happy in heaven, in the presence of God, if you carry darkness and unrighteousness in your life. It has to go and it is going to go, and it's part of the redemptive plan. So, it's not just being saved, it literally is being healed, it literally is being delivered, and it is literally being made whole. This is part of God's desire for all humanity or every man. Next, that no one would perish. So is there anybody He wants to perish? No. Jesus said, when He's talking to His disciples, he said, uh, or when he's praying to his father, um, "You know, I've lost none of these except the Son of Perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled." That's a perplexing thought when you think about this concept that God wants no one to perish. Uh, we'll come back to it in a little bit, but the revelation in that prayer does not negate the reality of this truth. You don't have to balance, Second Peter. Three, nine against John 17, whatever that would be, like 11, 12, 13, wherever it was. Okay? This is a reality. The word there is palmai and apol means to kept away from, and alumi is a really interesting word that's used for perishing. It's ruin or punishment, destruction, loss, being marred or perishing. It has a lot more relational compassion in it than just the idea of you're guilty, somebody's going to bring the axe on you. Or you're guilty, you're going to be thrown in the fire. God doesn't even desire that we're marred. He doesn't desire that we're that we're twisted, that we carry the scars of deception and darkness. He doesn't want us to suffer loss. Now, are people going to suffer loss? I think so. But it's not God's desire. He also wants all to come to a full experiential knowledge of the truth. And, and I, I, I capitalize truth with a question mark. Does God want us to know truth just as knowledge, or does he want us to know truth as Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life? And I think that's what he wants. He wants people to have a relationship with Jesus, with his Son, to know him, to share in his life. And we've been doing pretty good I think, in Joyland for the last little while, trying to understand the bigness of that concept. That we're not just being substituted for, Jesus is not just a sacrifice on our behalf, He's literally inviting us into the relational capabilities that He has with His Father, so that we can enjoy that. And that's what we've got to begin to see for other people. Okay? And to come into a change of heart. To repent. Metanoian. It's, it's, it's the idea of changing your mind, changing your heart. So I like change of heart, change of mind. Now, keep these things in mind. God wants everybody to be saved, but He, he doesn't have a concept or a desire that they be saved without a knowing of, of the truth. So there's no such thing as the ultimate ignorant salvation where you just get a ticket and then you show up someplace. And he he wants he he doesn't want people to perish, but the alternative of that is not some kind of greasy grace thing. The alternative is genuine heartfelt change. Genuine heartfelt change. Now this begins to allow me more easily to check my own desires against God's. Because if I think remember in the shack, how many have seen the shack? Okay. Remember in the shack when uh Papa takes on the form of the man instead of the woman, and he's going to. Yeah, Tim has seen it a couple of times, and um, and and they're they're heading out to look so that um, uh, Matt, uh, Matt, Maddie, no, no, the little girl, Maddie, no, Meg, I don't know, the little girl, her body can be found. And uh, so, anyway, Papa says, or Max says. So I know I've got to forgive him, and he's he's just going to get away with it. And he goes, Oh no, nobody ever gets away with anything. Now that's that was something that stirred up a lot of trouble for Paul Young, because of the whole substitutionary atonement reform theology. It's not a works related thing. That's because it was thought about as one expression of a doctrine against another. Take away the expression of the doctrine, and you begin to realize God wants everybody to be saved through knowing the one to be known. In other words, there's not going to be any salvation without also having eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you sent, the truth. Okay. Also, he doesn't want anybody to perish. But the ones that are perishing are the ones that have not yet repented, not yet had a change of heart. They're stuck believing wrong, living wrong, and that explains a lot. So then I think now about these three people that I have the photos of in my mind that uh, were so hurt and so angry and so misinformed and so perhaps arrogant or whatever, so abused when they were young, so entitled. I don't know. I don't have no idea. I don't know anything about them except they're human beings, and I know what God wants for them. And I know they're not living in the revelation of that, or they wouldn't be doing the things they did yesterday. If they were to come to a full experiential knowledge of Jesus, how hard would it be for me to have magnanimous thoughts towards them? Not hard. If they had a real change of heart, if they walk through this door, and I recognized one of them, and they said, we were just wandering around looking for a place, and I did something so horrible yesterday and so inconceivable, I don't, I don't know if God can forgive me. Would anybody in this room have a hard time embracing them and releasing that forgiveness? No. So we know this stuff because Christ is in us. That's why we know it. That's why it's real. And we know... I mean, Paul... Paul is on the road to Damascus... with legal papers... to pull Christians out of their homes... to burn them out... to put them in prison... to kill them if he feels it's necessary. When it pleased the Father, Paul says... To reveal his son in me. Okay. This is, so now I'm getting, breaking this down in my own heart to where I realize, okay, Lord, I can know and take on your desires. Now help me. Because obviously my first reaction is not always like that. My first reaction is angry, carnal, judgmental, all the things that you're not. But but it doesn't last long, I will tell you that. Now, it still bugs me that it could happen again after tomorrow, when I read the next news story. And I think it could happen. I don't want it to, but it could. But the fact that this is the journey that I'm on, lining up with the Father's desires by the virtue of the Holy Spirit being in and with me, and Jesus living in me, and the Father abiding in me, that is a more real thing about my identity than the carnal part of it. And I don't think I'm letting myself off the hook easy or anything. I also know that God has time, but there isn't enough time in all of the aeons for me to skate by and keep all this stuff. It will go. I will not carry this in eternity. Now, is some of it going to be substitutionary? Sure. Sure. Is some of it going to be imparted? Yes. But it is all going to be real. And it is all going to be experiential. I will experience myself cleaned of these unrighteousnesses. And that's another thing that then makes me look at them and say, well, if you can clean me, really clean me, not just forgive me because I said the magic words, if you can really transform me, then you can transform them. Yes, babe.
1: So, Mike, I just want to go back to a sermon that you you taught maybe a year and a half ago. Okay. And it's the whole concept that time is on our side. Yeah. And so if we um, walk in some of this stuff, you know, the all and what does God desire and... Um, does he? You know, does does he get what he desires and everything? Time really is on our side. Time is on the side of those young men, young women, whatever. Um, but
0: we. So here's my mind. <laughs> sure. Even Governor Cuomo, time is on his side as well. Yes,
1: right. Right. <laughs> and honestly, you know, I mean, um, I can't remember if it was Cope, Budge, or. Dr. Sharp who said um, your emotions are are just you know your feelings are your feelings and your feelings can lead you in a direction but the reality is is that when you had those feelings about those guys it led you in the right direction, which was going to the Lord in that, but the, the whole idea, when you were talking about, I, I just started thinking about that sermon that you gave on Time is on Our Side, mm-hmm. and we all sang that song. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, time is, is on, our, on side, our side, you know,
1: and and it's on their side and yeah. Cuomo's side. and mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway.
0: Cool. And if you weren't here for that sermon, the, the sort of centerpiece of it is in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, where it says, through whom he made, and, and a lot of translations say, through whom he made the world. But what it really says is through whom he made the aeons. He made the ages. And these ages just keep coming at you. So that's another thing, in, in case you ever get Michael Phillips' books on uh, the Beyond series. Uh, which the... Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, that's true. Anyway, it's really uh, aeons are ages for with a purpose. And his depiction of heaven and all of that stuff and the transformation that goes on there is broken into these aeons. It's really a very beautiful rendering. So, uh, here we go. Now, I-, I wanted to go through a real-life example in Paul. And so this is him. So this is Paul's reasoning and judgment. This is in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. For the love of the anointed constrains us, having reached this judgment. Now, do you understand that that is a cognitive function? That means that we don't have to wait for some mysterious thing to happen. The mysterious thing is already revealed. That is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Christ in the, the, the others, the hope of glory. So that's the mystery that has been hidden in times past, but it's now been revealed. And so in the light of that revealed mystery of Christ in me and Christ in you and Christ in the people that rioted against Thanksgiving... Uh, That mystery has now been revealed, and therefore we can engage ourselves cognitively like this. The love of the anointed constrains us, having reached this judgment, this conclusion is what Numeric Standard says, that one died on behalf of all. All then have died. And he died on behalf of all so that the living should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who has died and been raised on their behalf. All right, so just look at this and we're going to zoom through them quickly because I just want you to kind of embrace Paul's thinking in the Revelation. He didn't have to say, it doesn't matter what they did. It doesn't matter the evil. It doesn't matter the abuse. He can go back and agree with Peter. Hey, the world's being reserved for the impiety among human beings. It's going to be taken care of by fire. But... What's fire? Fire is one of the four things that God is. God is spirit. God is a consuming fire. He is fire. He's always been fire. Otherwise, Moses wouldn't have had to take off his shoes in front of the fire that didn't consume the bush. Fire's not holy that way. God's holy, and God's fire. Uh, he's also light. Light has come in the world, Scripture says in John 3, and men love darkness rather than light. That's the nature of judgment, that light exposes darkness. So He died on behalf of all, so that the living should no longer live for themselves. That means I don't have to have some kind of wimpy, weak, uh, hyper-mercy for those individuals that were destroying stores for the sake of thanksgiving. Because the salvation that the Lord wants for them and the perishing that He wants them to avoid is going to produce a transformation in their life so that they reflect the image that they bear in ways that they do not right now. And time is on His side. So they should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died and been raised on their behalf. And that also can apply to me. Now, I also don't think that we've got to talk ourselves into trying to align with this by saying, oh, there's no real difference in the way I behave and the way they behave. Of course there is. Of course there is. There are things that are better than other things. There are ways to treat people that are better than other people, and we don't need to knock it off. But on the other hand, we also can't afford to revert back to an old in-and-out separation mentality that I used to have when I was fueled by Reformed theology that said, uh, unless you're born again, nothing you do can be anything except unrighteous, filthy rags. That means that a mother who isn't uh, born again, loving her children, is doing so for unrighteous, selfish people. Our reasons. That's ridiculous. We don't have to do that. This is a process of full and utter transformation, redeeming us out of darkness because Christ has come. And the result of it is that we should live for the one who died and raised us again, not ourselves, not our own fears. Second, Paul's response to this conclusion. He made a conclusion. Hey, Christ died. So now I can look at those three photographs. And I can envision the people that are there, and I can make a place for them in my thinking, and I can make a place for them in my heart, and I can even begin to make a place for them in my language and my speaking. And I can say, you know, Father, these are image bearers of yours, but they're not reflecting that image very much. And, and I have no idea why. And He might tell me, well, you know, one of them was abused when they were young, and blah, 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 blah. blah. I don't know. I don't know. But it did not have to happen. I don't need all that. I can still make a judgment. A just judgment. And then the response that Paul made was instructive. Thus, thus what? Oops, wrong way. Because I reached this judgment that one died on behalf of all, all then have died. Because of that, from now on, we know no one according to the flesh. And I will freely admit that this convicted me because when I looked at those and I read the news story about what they did, and these were the only three I think that were arrested, I, I, I made a complete judgment and identified them solely on the basis of what I could see and read from the outside of their life. And I didn't really even know them. I mean, for all I know, one of them could have been trying to get out of one of those businesses that they were working the night shift and just got arrested in the middle of the melee. I don't know. And so the stupidity of my judgment, the ignorance of it, the, the narrowness of it, was revealed to me. Praise God, though. Also, so was the grace. So I could, as you said, Vicki, I could... Go the right way with the revelation, with the conviction. Even though we have known the anointed, yet know him no longer according to the flesh. In other words, Paul said, man, I remember, I remember when what Jesus meant to me was a zealous justification for my own self-righteousness and my own murderous intent. One of the highlights of my life before coming to Christ was standing there holding the cloak of the judges while Stephen was stoned to death. Man, you can read in Acts, when Paul's talking about those events, how his life was so utterly transformed. So, there's nothing that you or me have, have rendered as a judgment that God will not transform us out of and cleanse us from. And he's already in the midst of that work because the ages are beginning to roll in our life already in Christ, just like they did in Paul's. Hence, if anyone is in the anointed, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Look, they have become new. So this is a continuation. It's an application, a first step to application of taking seriously the fact that the mystery has been revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that Paul said, when it pleased the Father to reveal His Son in me, when it pleased the Father who had called me from my mother's womb to uh, preach Christ in the Gentiles, both among and in, just the whole central thing, that's what it's talking about here. If anyone is in the anointed. Well, is anyone? I am. By my choice? No. That is something I'm convinced of. I'm in Him by His choice. Remember, uh, at Pentecost, in the last days, I'll pour out my flesh on all, uh, all. I mean, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. We are in Him by His choice, by His work. That's what we studied about. All right, so now it's time to apply it. Is He in Governor Cuomo? I think so. Can I see him? Not really but I've not tried very hard to look. I've not asked to become, Lord, give me eyes. Or let me see through your eyes. Do you think that the father sees his son in Governor Cuomo? I do. I know he sees him. Now, sitting here, under conviction of it, I know he sees him in those three young people that were writing. I know it. And just because I don't is just a testimony to my blindness and ignorance and the the journey that I'm still on to be transformed. It isn't truth. Because his life is the light that enlightens the heart of who? Every man coming into the world. Now, I know this is a challenge to believe when you look at some of the people that come into the world. But when you really think about what that says, didn't all those people come into the world just squeaking and cooing and crying and pooping? Weren't they all somebody's baby? They didn't come in rioting or trafficking children and women. They didn't come into the world with political arrogance or religious pride and stupidity. They came in like a little baby. Everybody. Look, they have become new. And then Paul made another choice, acknowledging a revelation. And all things come out of God. Their life. Maybe even the passion that drove them out there on Thanksgiving to riot. Is it twisted? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it doesn't necessarily just come as a, you know, from the author, the devil. Maybe this is a twisted, like Paul's was. He really thought he was doing God a service. You, you know that because Jesus said that to his disciples in Matthew 10, I think. He said, you know, people are going to haul you before the synagogue and they're going to think they're doing God a service by killing you. Almost for sure, Saul of Tarsus felt that way. And so his life was a manifestation of ignorance and deception. Not evil in the way we would identify somebody with evil. And I know this is a bitter pill to swallow some because it's so much easier to categorize people. So much easier for me. And then you stroke it with a little bit of self-righteous indignation and all of a sudden it feels good. (laughs) You're on the right side of history or events, or whatever. But, I do want to be on the right side. And that's not how to get there. How to get there is in the face of all the evidence to the contrary, that seems to present to the contrary. I want to believe the revelation of Scripture about who God is and how He sees and thinks of people. What His heart is like toward me and towards others. And I can testify, in spite of my personal failures and disappointments in this area, that have been exacerbated a little bit through all this political stuff. I'm different than I used to be. It doesn't stick. It doesn't drive me emotionally. I can repent quickly and easily. And I'm even different after repenting. I don't grouse around about it a long time. I remember one time Dennis Fryer uh, taught a men's breakfast for us. And he said, you know, the sign of maturity is not walking uh, is not necessarily walking consistently righteousness. A real sign of maturity is how quickly you can get up and shake it off when you fall. And I thought there's truth in that. There's truth in that because the one presupposes that, that uh, maturity is reflected by perfection. There will be perfection, but it's not happening right this minute. The process of maturity is happening now though through repentance and through growing in a full knowledge, the experiential knowledge. So that God was in the anointed, reconciling the cosmos to himself. So let me go back up here. And all these things come out of God. So Paul understood the source, who through the anointed has reconciled us to himself, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he goes on to re-describe that again in a way that's so beautiful to me. And I really love the way David Billinghart does it. So that God was in the anointed reconciling the cosmos to himself. Wow. Wow. Not accounting their trespasses to them. So the three that are arrested, I don't know what's going to happen. Probably nothing. In the current climate. Maybe. Who knows? But one thing that isn't going to happen is that God is not going to change the way he looks at them and start defining them by their indiscretions yesterday. That's the way his heart is. Because he sees his son. I see my son in them. And I see their sin in him. And I would no more resurrect my judgment of that sin in them and dishonor what my son did after that episode in the garden when he said, you could take this away because you can do anything. What would have happened if Jesus had said that? If he had not gone on and surrendered his will? You think his father might have answered his prayer request? I mean, it's a speculative question, and it's foolish in a way. But yeah. I mean, was was all of our reconciliation in this, this story, was that all hinging on Jesus working through the agony of that moment? And saying, but nevertheless, Papa, Abba. Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty special. I mean, like I wept when I read god of in those terms. I think we should weep more. I and mean, this is a big deal. That's why when we were in that one song and on a hill that you created, <laughs> you died so that we could live. I mean, come on. It's amazing. So that God was in the anointed, reconciling the cosmos to himself, not accounting their trespasses to them and placing a, in us the word reconciliation. So I... I I think this is Paul's identity. Let me back up just for a couple little things here. So first of all, there is the proper uh, reasoning that leads to righteous judgment. Okay. The next thing is Paul's response to that reasoning. In other words, I sat there and I thought about the reality. I, I spoke it out. Jesus, you died for these kids. You died for these politicians. You died for these people. You know, a person that's really beautiful, when you talk to her about it, is Nancy going that way. She says, you know, if we can win the the trafficker, we will save a lot of people being trafficked. That's true. But if you don't love, if you can't love a person because of their prickly, sinful, disgusting, smelly, wrong, evil exterior, you can't. So Paul's solution to that was, we won't know anybody according to the flesh. Great response. If we could make that determination, that would go a long way. Now, as a result of that judgment, that righteous judgment, and that and his response to that by making a conscious choice, I'm not going to look at the flesh to determine who people are. I'm not going to allow myself to do that. He ended up with an identity. He's one who carries the ministry of reconciliation. And... Guys, uh, I want that for us. I want that for the people that we minister to. Those of you that take the time on Zoom and they come here and that we get to associate with. I want us to be vessels of that message and the power behind it. And from that identity, there came a ministry. Therefore, we are ambassadors of on the anointed's behalf of such a kind that God makes supplication through us for the sake of the anointed. Now think about that. I don't have any idea what this means, but just to say it sounds pretty spectacular. So God who creates all things and has all authority makes supplication to the world through us. If... We will render that righteous judgment and identify with Father's heart in the fact that without exception, there's nobody that we have to guess about. He wants all to be saved, and he doesn't want any of them to perish. And in that process, he wants them all to come to a full knowledge of the truth, and he wants all of them to have a complete and thorough life-giving, life-transforming change of mind. That's amazing. It's amazing. Therefore, we are ambassadors on the anointed's behalf of such a kind that God can make supplication through us. For the sake of the anointed, we implore, be reconciled to God. Now, this is another one of those beautiful things. I don't have to figure out how everybody's reconciliation is going to manifest because obviously it still needs to. But the fact that... it that Paul is admonishing and that we are to admonish people. Be reconciled to God does not mean that they are not from God's perspective. So I have to go ahead and figure out how to believe that everybody's reconciled, but that everybody needs to wake up to that. Everybody needs to be reconciled. And that's going to get us to our final point here in just a sec. For our sakes, and think about this, for our sakes he made the one who knew no sin into sin so that in Him we might become God's righteousness, including the people that are in that article. So whatever I choose to think about their behavior, which I know almost nothing about, and therefore I have to render pretty much a self-centered blind judgment, whatever I end up doing, it cannot overwhelm the fact that the innocent, sinless Lamb of God, the Logos of God, the Son of God, was made sin for them, look what it says, so that we might become. It's a process. Are they there yet? No. Am I there yet? No. Might I be further on the journey? Yeah, I might. I might also have a bunch of hidden, self-righteous, religious junk that they don't have to even deal with. I don't know. And that's it. We don't have to make the comparisons on that way. I love you guys i like the way for the most part we live but they are in this redemptive plan just like we are are they are they reconciled i would say yes from god's standpoint are they from their own i would bet money not i bet if you ask them whatever kind of self-satisfaction and and uh, identity they get out of writing and vandalizing I bet you hardly any of them would say oh no this is the highest expression of my value and goodness I just don't think so and probably not very many people have asked him that and a lot of people that know what Paul knows won't love them enough to try somehow we're going to have to do that all right So some thoughts on context. What are we not being asked to believe? We're not being asked to believe that everybody's all the same and that their lives count exactly for the same thing, no matter how beastly they behave, how grossly they behave, how religiously they behave or anything. This is not an equity call for the way things happen on earth. We are supposed to not live that way. We're supposed to live for the one that died for us. So we're not being called to do that, okay? The next thing we're not being called to do is we're not being called to figure out how God's going to get this desire fulfilled. We can speculate. I mean, I can say ages after ages after ages give Him the time to redeem people. I personally don't mind saying I believe God is going to find a way. That's what I believe, but I don't have a bone to pick with you. If uh, if 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 you don't, if you think that you know what, I still can't resolve the question of free will. And I think if somebody just wills indefinitely to choose to rebel, then there's going to be the indefinite consequence of that. I'm okay. I loved again going back to Michael Phillips' book. Uh, in the last book, the guy is having a question who who is on his own path to. Re- fully understanding the Lord and redeemed, he asked the question of George Macdonald, the Scotsman that's kind of there as his guide. And he said, so what about the people that are just like monsters? You know, that just did monstrous things, the Hitler type. He says, is it possible that, that they... And, and and so he was trying and struggling to ask the question in an intelligent way in the enlightened environment of, of a, a heavenly experience. And McDonald's go, I don't know. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, a guy who has been in heaven for centuries, aeons, who is used in this fictional account of heaven uh, to to guide people. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't fully understand all that will come. I know that that uh, I know what I know what the Father wants, and I know who He is. But I don't know how it's going to work. If we could just say that, guys, do you understand how easy it would be to quit fighting over some of these doctrines? But then there are some things that are worth fighting over because then if you eliminate the need to have to be able to explain everything because before you can believe what seems to be relatively directly stated, which is that God desires that all men be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth and that he doesn't want anybody to perish, if somebody then tells you, no, God does want somebody to perish and they cite that scripture about Pharaoh and his heart being hardened or something like that. That's worth getting in a little bit of a row over. No, no, you don't have the right to interpret that scripture to nullify this declaration about the heart of the Father. You don't. And you are saying that. You can't make justice claims. You can't make uh judgment claims. You can't make righteousness claims and then nullify what is plainly said about the heart of the Father. That I'll fight over because you don't have that right. And then they might even say, and I've had it happen some, well, that's not what I'm trying to say. Well, then you should stop saying it, because that is what you're saying. And you and and I don't have permission to say that. Now, do we want to ponder and balance out the Scripture? Yeah, well, yeah. No, really, I don't anymore. I want to believe the things that I hear and see. And when God says something out of the Bible... And the Holy Spirit confirms it. I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of it anymore. I'm saying, Lord, I want to relate to you on the basis of what's revealed about your heart. And and then there are beautiful things that come from that, for me personally. So like the Lord starts teaching. So anyway, I get this revelation one time, a few years ago. Hey, there's only four nouns that follow God is. One of them is spirit. One of them is light. One of them is consuming fire. And, or fire, consuming as an adjective. And one of them is, uh, is love. Love, said twice. So that means, Lord, all these mysterious, seemingly contradictory scriptures about fire, I have a place to put them now. That don't make you not love. Or not light. Or not spirit. Now, for somebody who's really sold on eternal conscious torment, that's probably not going to satisfy them. But it's certainly going to allow me to have fun in a conversation with them. Because I don't have to deny who God is. And I can point out that their line of reasoning, because there is reasoning in this thing, right? Paul said, I've come to this conclusion. I've made this judgment. That because Christ died for all, all have died. Okay? We'll pick that apart. Anyway, we're not required to balance and justify every revelation that seems different. Keep in mind, that the revelation of God's heart, that all men be saved, come to knowledge of the truth, and that no one perish, but uh, have a true change of heart and repentance. It is Both of them are right smack in the middle of cultural and and political chaos and of the world being reserved for fire for the judgment of impious people. So when they say, well, if you don't believe in hell, then you're going to have to... No, no, no. Let's stop. What you're talking about as hell is probably in the verse just above where it says that God doesn't want anyone to perish but all that kind of See, this is, this is, this is cool. And eternal life is not that they would know the right things about you, God. And they would know the right things about Jesus, whom you sent. It's that we would know Him. And that that manifestation of eternal life corresponds exactly with what this says. My Father, God, Spirit, Son, want all men to be saved. And, in that saving prospect to come to know fully the truth. So, I'm hoping that we can keep going Here's the two-part question. How can we and will we share God's desires and intentions? So, we could talk about it. I've gone long. I'm sorry. Uh, a little. The answer is pretty obvious, really. Let what is revealed clearly about God be revealed. And hold it in tension with the other things you think it presents a problem for because it probably does present a problem in understanding. We are finite, and we see things from a horizontal reflection and use as an example to let your heart be okay with attention what it says in Paul's experience. God was in Christ reconciling the whole cosmos to himself, not accounting their trespasses against him. And in the very next word, We are now then like God who's making supplication on behalf of all these people that from his point of view are fully reconciled to him by Christ. You reconciled. So now you have a, they're reconciled and they're not reconciled. Let them live. Let them breathe. Let the Holy Spirit wake you up in the middle of the night some night and go, hey, you want me to tell you how those things work together? Better have you had that experience where, or in an ascension, Lord, show us something. Well, wow! Hey, both those things are real. You know, this is the beauty of where we're at. If we will keep these things relational, and keep keep in mind that what Paul did is he made a, a rational judgment that went back to the relationship, and he says, now as a result of that, God can use me to make supplication on behalf of people for for Christ. Beautiful thing. Okay. Any questions?
2: Yes, Greg. Um, I hope this doesn't come across as too passive. Uh, just pull it up a little bit closer. Yeah. I hope a... this doesn't come across as too passive. Paul gives a parallel statement to this that works exactly with it. Uh, Philippians 2.13. Mm-hmm. It says, It is God who works, the Greek word is energizes, you to both will, failing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and do his good pleasure that's absolutely right and that last his good pleasure it actually means delight and there's an old testament it's a minor prophet i don't remember which one says his delight is mercy god can literally because i'm with you i see what's going on bricks through windows i get so mad i'm like i know and god will i remember i actually some guy was asking me questions and we were in agreement so i was free to talk a little bit i drive uber Lyft full time and what do you think about these? And I said something that I'm really ashamed of, and I'm going to say it. I said, I said, uh, I hate commies, and I want them to die. And I felt God say, well, I don't. You don't what? I don't hate them, and I don't want them to die. <laughs> 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 sort of pointing out, hey, you are engaging in a will that is not mine. That's beautiful. But God but... injects himself into it. He worked in me both to will, including correct my will. Mm-hmm. And to do His good pleasure. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as you said Thaleen, I'm like, Will, Will, Will. Word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's beautiful. But I've I've been struggling with that a whole lot too. I see all these things on the screen, and, and God's, it's really amazing. I worry that I'm being too passive about it. God's like, not not only will I correct you, don't worry. I'm going to give you the energy, literally energize you to do it. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to take care of it through you. I'm like, okay, wow. So, that's
0: cool. Yeah. That's really good. That's well said. You know, the long game in this for me, exactly what you're saying. Again, God's not trying to correct how we think. He's trying to transform who we are so that we can align with him. And so what if our passions, the ones we share when we react that way, what if those are a manifestation of being made as an image bearer of God? Like like I said, Lord, how do you see these people in my journal? And he said, oh, I'm grieved. He said, "The grief is real. The pain is real. The fire is real." But, and then he went into talking about, "I see their lives in my son. I can't turn away from that. I don't want to. I would never think of it. It was beautiful. I mean, was, and and so this transformation—it's real—and this is what we're engaged in. And when the darkness manifests all around us." Can we, do you guys think that we might become, through this tr- transforming process, a person that could say, like Paul said, so now God can make supplication through me? You know, I think back to, like, the story I heard about, uh, Corey Boom, and how she was, f- God worked in her both to will and do this love for the guard that had had her in concentration camp when she saw him. That's a miracle. But it's only a miracle here. That's how God thinks. That's why Christ came. Yes, we can do this. He can do it. The one who works in us both to will and do according to his good pleasure. You guys are great. Anybody else? Alright, hang on a second. Meg's coming up. Ronnie, I'll put you on right after this.
3: Well, um, we had an interesting experience on Tuesday morning. The Lord woke me up and I was just talking to him and thinking about Thanksgiving and, and what our plans were and everything. And and uh, uh, He said, I want you to go to the hospitals and I want you to uh, take your position as, as my son and uh, decree and declare that the COVID patients would be released to be with their families on Thanksgiving Day. It was his desire that they be reunited with their families. And so on Tuesday, uh, we had a couple of things to take care of and that's what we did. And I, and he said, I want you to use the door. To the hospital as a touch point, and uh, and and so our expectation wasn't to be able to go into the hospital, so we went to Memorial first, and uh, we didn't go around to the front because that's a real mess. I, have you ever, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, there's no parking there. You so have you
0: parked to, up in the thing and went down. Well, there.
3: we went to the on the back and mm-hmm. we went to the back door, and we just laid hands on it and. and and prayed that the people, you know, would would be healed and they'd come forth. And uh, then we went to um, Penrose, and we walked in, and they let us go. Um, Tim was inspired. He said, "Oh, we want to go to the chapel." And they just gave us a little sticker, and we went to the chapel, and we prayed out loud, Praise and we God. we we just decreed and declared that these people are healed. And then I just said, no matter what age, no matter what they're in here for, you know, that they be reunited with their families. And then we went to UC Health on on uh, Nevada, and that was the last one we went to, and um, there was nobody. Well, there was two people in the lobby when I walked in. There was no guard there. The guard walked past me, and he left. And so I just walked into this huge entry area and just prayed out loud, and there was no receptionist. There was one gal that I think she was waiting for somebody, but she was far enough away, and I just... Walked through and decreed and declared, and <laughs> but I didn't have the feeling like I had to be responsible for the results. The Lord just lifted that off of me, and I just you know we were just being obedient to do what we were called to do, and so that was our Tuesday. And that's so, amazing. Yeah, it that's was. That's wonderful. It was pretty cool.
0: That's wonderful. You know, I've never been an ambassador officially, like a political one. But it has to be kind of that. If an ambassador had personal responsibility that everything that was being exchanged officially and supplicated, they were personally responsible for it. man, that'd drive you off the wall or send you into corruption or something. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Ronnie? Hey, so the little girl in the shack is Missy. Missy, thank you. You're
1: and uh, you made a statement that was just sort of thrown out there that I thought was incredible.
2: So I'm going to repeat it and you tell me if I got it
1: right. That okay, I'm trying to change who we are. I'm sorry. Not got, start over. Hi. You made a great statement saying God's not trying to change how we think, but transform who we are. And I
0: th- So Saul was actually changed. He was changed, and then as a result, I mean, you could tell he was reflecting on it. He said We've even thought of the anointed one, the Messiah, in this, in this way, in the flesh, but we don't think of anybody that way anymore. And then I understand what it's like to, to make an adjustment in how you think because you're changing, and then all of a sudden you're open to more revelation. So Paul got that revelation. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. Well, of course he got that revelation because the Lord said he finally revealed to me the mystery which has been hidden in the ages and now been revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of course. So, yeah, that's great, Ronnie. And I think if we can, if we can embrace that, but also expect it. Expect the transformation to open our hearts and minds to new revelation. But the part that makes it
1: easy, if it's easy at all, is that when we change... Trans- we'll change the way we think.
0: Act revelation that fits with this that it is God who works in us both to will and do. To will and do, according to that. So, all right. Well, that's, a to- that's a topic for a video. It, it would be a good one. It'd be a good one. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise God. Okay. Well, I don't know why I feel morally superior if I get us out of here by 8 30, but. I can and I do because it's just, I got like seven minutes before that happens. (laughs) All right. Well, Father, thank you. Thank you for willing and doing in us according to your good pleasure. And Lord, uh, I'm reminded of that passage. I don't remember the address of it, but it was in, uh, I think it was in Ezekiel where it says that you don't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but you rather would have them turn and be forgiven. And let our hearts be that way. Lord, we freely confess that we don't understand how all this is going to work out, and and we don't understand how you can, in one hand, there can be a victim, and on the other hand, a perpetrator that is the one that makes that person a victim through their beastly behavior or whatever, and how both of those can be a part of your objective for redemption. We can think about it. We can agree that your your ways are not our ways. It's bigger and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes down to actually seeing it, Lord, I think a lot of times we stumble because we keep trying to figure out how to balance the scale. And I I would ask, at least for this stage in this revelation in our lives here at Joyland, that you would reveal to us if the reason that that thinking is so hard to overcome is because we underestimate what you have done in Christ. We don't really realize how thoroughly the agony was faced in the garden. And when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, the door that he opened for the reconciliation of the cosmos is way bigger than we understand We do not understand, Lord, and I confess this freely on behalf of all of us and myself. We don't understand the challenge of that reconciliation, the depth that was required and the breadth of the sacrifice that was necessary. So, incrementally, as you understand we can receive it, help us see more clearly what Jesus did and what you did through him and what he did on your behalf and together what you did on the cross. With the Spirit, but also, Lord, let us not ponder things that are too big for us. Let just let our soul lean against uh, you, like a wean child leans against his mother, and let us experience the peace of that. And then, let Meg's story be an example, Lord. Your sheep hear your voice, and when you beckon us, we will hear and then we can go do. And that's really what's required. Now, I don't want to minimize it, Lord, because miracles are done that way. Cultures are changed that way. Societies are redirected that way, and lives are transformed that way. So I thank you that we are coming to grips with the simplicity of aligning our heart with yours. But it's a process that's going to go on through and beyond death, I'm sure. But the progress is real, the call is real, and our hope is real. We thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise God, that was fun.